0: Hello, this is Siri, and you're listening to my favorite podcast, Not Real Art. I live for this shit because it's totally lit. Greetings, artists and art lovers. Welcome to the Not Real Art Show, Siri's favorite podcast about creative culture. I'm your host, Sourdough. And today I'm joined by an Emmy Award winning writer, screenwriter, world traveler, gourmand, melomaniac, political junkie, social justice advocate, and all around nice fucking guy, Michael
1: Oates Palmer. In the house, Michael. How are you, sir? Great to be here, Sourdough. Thank, thank you for having me, especially with who needs self-aggrandizement when you have your friends to aggrandize you on your behalf.
0: And you're not even paying me.
1: It's not yet.
0: <laughs> I'm good though, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bill's in the mail. <laughs> so how
1: are you today, my friend? Thanks for coming by. Great to be here. Very exciting. I have recently been listening to the episodes and I'm like wow this is really good so <laughs> here i am to end your winning streak and send it all into the shitter oh that's why i love
0: you because you're so you're you're incredibly humble and self-effacing uh, and they self-deprecating i should say and it's great to have you. What uh, what's been keeping you busy lately? I
1: am briefly back here in Los Angeles for a few weeks. I have been in Toronto for the last 7 weeks. I work as I mostly work as a television writer. Yep. I've done other forms of writing too along the way, but the main way that I keep the lights on is writing and producing for television. And I have mostly done that through two different paths, which are the past that most TV writers make a living from. One is either working on other people's shows as writers on staff, since most television programs are done with a a writing staff in a writer's room, or I'll be doing uh, developing pilots, writing pilots in the hopes that they'll move forward where I would be the head writer showrunner of a show that would come from that. But I, in October, I took my first job on someone else's show in about four or five years. And it was the second season of a show that, MGM and Skydance produce called Condor, which is based kind of a remake, rethink of the old Robert Redford, Faye Dunaway conspiracy thriller, Three Days of the Condor. And I took the job knowing that I would both be an upper level writer in the writer's room for the second season. And then I also would then go to Toronto for much of production and kind of be there on set to act as a bit of a conduit between the showrunners in Los Angeles and the crew and cast and production in Canada. So I have I got there in late March and I'm back here for a few weeks. I go back in mid-June and then I'm there until early August. Now, have you played this middleman role before? I haven't. When I've written on other people's shows, it, a lot of times, I mean, it, it varies from show to show about whether they want the writers on set or not whether they're paying to send the writers on set. So I I worked on a couple of series where I was on set for the episodes that I wrote, but being on set for 10 days of production of your one episode is very different than really being there entrenched and working with the directing producer, and the line producer, and really looking at uh, how can we make this work as best as possible, given that we have these great scripts that we then have to actually make sure are filmable, given budgetary concerns and constraints. The word diplomaniac
0: comes to mind, you know, in this particular role. I mean, you must find yourself playing diplomat.
1: There is some of that, but I think when when they've done a Good job as they have on this show of choosing people who are both good at what they do and are also pleasant to deal with. Yeah, it's you keep in mind, and it, it's something which these are skills that I that that I think are important in so many creative fields. But both the confidence that when you delegate responsibilities to people that you help select or that you have faith in give them the room to then do the job 100%. that you that you helped hire them to do or or help select them to do and also i think just the, the real benefit i've always been a believer and i've seen this working for some great showrunners and then working for some showrunners who weren't necessarily the warmest candles on the mantle i'm a big believer that people will do better work when they are looking to please the good parent rather than when they're cowering in fear uh, from the bad or unpredictable parent. Yep. I've seen that time and time again. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, in this writer's room, like how long has the show been out?
1: This show, this is only the second season of the show. And the first season, creators and showrunners of the show, uh, really lovely, really bright guys named Jason Smilovic and uh, Todd Katzberg. They did the first season of the show – Literally ten, just the two of them doing ten episodes, and it's amazing that anybody is still standing after just writing and running. 10 episodes by themselves. So they didn't even have a writer's room for the first season. And then second season, just because it felt like we need to make this so that this is not going to be as exhausting for us. They, they had a, they had, a, they used a writer's room Yeah, okay. and that's a, you know, and and I've been on shows which have a writing staff that don't use a writer's room where it's almost like you just have writers off writing their own individual episodes, working with showrunners, maybe one-on-one, I really prefer to be on a show that uses a room because I think it it creates a real camaraderie sure. and community and it also cuts down on cliques or worse kind of more toxic factors like people kind of undermining or infighting. I think when everybody's in the same room working in common purpose, uh, you're more likely to have a constructive experience that also translate hopefully into a better product.
0: Yeah. I mean, I totally get that. I mean, I seem to me that just, you know, it's better for morale, better for, for a team spirit,
1: you know, a hundred percent. I grew up, um, my mother was a journalist and I really have memories. She worked at the Los Angeles times for much of my growing up. And I remember going, uh, with her when she had to go in on Saturdays and just seeing that kind of energy and excitement sure. in a newsroom and I always feel like the best moments in in a television it's writing staff yeah you feel the best moments are like a newsroom the worst moments turn into lord of the flies you know it's <laughs> right. just a whole different whole different dynamic sure
0: wow so full confession you know total transparency here I
1: have not seen condor we unfortunately, the hardest thing about the show is that it is very hard to see because you can only watch it if you have direct TV. Interesting. I, it's now available on DVD if people have still have DVD players to, to watch it. <laughs> yes. It has not yet been made available on Netflix or Amazon Prime, but people who have direct TV can watch it on a... Real network with lovely people uh, called the uh, Audience Network, which has some other shows like David E. Kelly has a show based on a Stephen King novel called Mr. Mercedes that's on the same network. And so it's owned by AT&T yeah. and as is DirecTV. And so it, we're living in such a crazy time, right? The
0: proliferation of channels and 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 networks. And I mean, my God, I, I'm drowning over here.
1: Yeah, and I think there's a real concern, which I think most of us are having, which is, this is great, but how long can this last? Yeah. At, at what point does the supply Uh, exceed the demand at what point are people and the challenge is is that it also means more than ever it's okay not just are you creating something good but how do you get this across to the people how does something break how does something catch people's attention and you don't want it to be something where it just pushes people to make content just because it's loud or let's watch this because it's you know self consciously provocative, because I think some of the best shows are sometimes shows that you really that are a slow burn or something where you really like you know might not be something that is so easily summarized in 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 a tasty log line nugget bite, but instead where you're like oh this is this is a show with characters and situations that I find incredibly interesting,
0: yeah, I mean this deluge of content is exactly the reason why I had zero desire to start a podcast. Because you felt that there was just I mean, who need- so I mean, much. Exactly. It's like who's got time for another fucking podcast? <laughs> you know what I mean? Who
1: what does the world need right now? Not another podcast. <laughs> you know? I mean, I, I think I think with podcasts it's something where if you have a voice or a specific world or terrain that you feel hasn't been covered, or that you feel you could cover in a better way than existing models, then I think it's it, it, it's worthwhile. Like for me, it's you know, when I have, especially when I'm developing my own projects and work, it's I often come to it with, I mean, I was a I was a history major in college. I loved, I grew up just loving stories, always a very voracious reader. I respect for people whose interests and in things have kind of been frozen in time from when they were 13 years old and they only want to adapt comic books. Yeah. But that's not me. Right. That's not like I almost really have tried to take almost a journalist's like curiosity of oh, here's an interesting sandbox that I want to learn more about because for me one of the most fun parts of my job is research yes. is learning about something so that when cuz you know, we live in a world of very savvy viewers and readers. You know when you're watching something when it doesn't feel real or authentic and they didn't do their research. And I love the part of the process that is, let me learn about this so that when I write about it, I'm writing about it with a confidence as if I'm someone who lived it. Rings true. And you can see that in certain shows that unexpectedly, you can see in some comedies. Like, I really respect the guys at Silicon Valley because even though it's a very funny comedy, they really made the authenticity and truth of capturing that world a big priority. Where sometimes I'll watch something and you'll see a detail that you just know that's not how it work in the real world. And when that happens, I'm done. Like, I'm just, I, I don't feel I'm in the hand, like the knowing hands of people who know what they're doing.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I'm thinking of breaking bad right now. And what a love letter to New Mexico that show seems to be now, you know, you have to wonder like, okay, was that one of those deals where it's like, Okay, we don't have any money. Where are we going to go shoot? Oh, New Mexico. Okay, maybe the tax breaks are good there or whatever. I don't know. I don't know how they backed into that or if they or if it was deliberate. But what I loved about the approach is that on some level, it felt like a love letter to New Mexico because it and there was an authenticity there, what have you. Or at least it provided a frame for the story to work hard. I mean, the story came through because it wasn't necessarily site-specific. I mean, I feel like they could have – now they needed, a, I guess, a border town kind of location, you know, to help tell that story. Anywho, what I, I'm getting I at – that's a great yeah. example
1: because I think that there's – even if – The choice to set that in New Mexico, and I'm not sure, I don't really remember, but if that was dictated by tax breaks or where we need to shoot this, they then took it as an opportunity for where we're going to make it. So I love, I'm a big, I love travel. I think it's a real, it really. I think it's crucial for 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 a writer to kind of be out there in the world. The thing that can sometimes bore me more than anything is when people, TV shows and movies about TV shows and movies. I want to take me somewhere that, that I haven't been and I love it when you watch something and you feel that the locale and the setting is a character in and of itself, whether that's the slums of Baltimore or the meth labs of Albuquerque, New Mexico, or an advertising agency in 1960s Manhattan. Like, I love that kind of richness because then I feel, then you feel there's that quality sometimes when you go, when you get really into a show or movie that it can feel like a snow globe, that you really are in this perfect – Not a perfect world in the sense it's not like a, you know, a Wes Anderson movie might be perfectly manicured, but, but when you at least feel it, where it all feels like it's a cohesive whole in some way. And, and I think like I love when I'm researching something like, like getting to know a city. I was just in Detroit for the first time. I was in Toronto, one of my best friends from college is a computer scientist in Ann Arbor. And I just drove four hours for Easter weekend And Detroit just kind of blew my mind. And it wasn't necessarily what I expected. And there were things that were just surprises along the way. And the architecture was incredible. And you saw it wasn't just, I worried when I went that it was going to feel like ruin porn, where you just see a city that's just a disaster. And no, actually, that might've been where it was at a few years ago, but now you're there and you're really seeing young people and an energy and people just trying something new and a love for their city. And that was just extremely exciting to to watch and be a part of. And I I love seeing those settings and I love when I'm coming up with a story I want to tell, okay, what city and why this city or why this place and what does that lend itself to the story I want to tell on these characters and how do those speak to each other?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, the old adage about, you know, write what you know. I mean, if, you know, if you're a writer that doesn't know much.
1: (laughs) So, you just hit on something because I feel it's one of the most misunderstood pieces of advice people give. Because too often when people hear, write what you know, they think only look at my own navel and let me just talk about my own life, my own experiences. And those are all very useful. But I also think when somebody says, write what you know, that's an imperative to know more, to read more, to learn more, so you have more things to draw from. And then what I find is like when I wrote a pilot that was about war correspondence in Central America in the early 80s. I wasn't a war correspondent in Central America in the early 80s, but what I then was able to do was bring some interpersonal things from my own life into those characters. I knew what it was like to miss someone, or I knew what it was like to feel angry about this or be passionate about that. And those- those things often give us the points of entry, so that you're not watching something that just feels exotic to you, but actually does feel accessible. That does feel that, oh, okay, this might be a different world I haven't been before, or a different city or a job I didn't think about, but I relate. I connect to this character. I want to see that. I mean, I I saw that early on when I my first job in television was I was a baby writer for Aaron Sorkin's The West Wing, yeah. and the, the the show won an Emmy. I did not. Win an Emmy for it, but it won an Emmy. I era. was trying to give you this some shine, but I don't want people to be like, See, this is uh, how s- there will be one guy somewhere who'll be like, I'm sorry, actually, <laughs> s- actually, sourdough. He did not win an Emmy award, he was a baby writer on the show. Be- but-
0: and I'm glad you corrected the record because when this podcast blows up, yes, exactly, right, and you you know, you're going to be exposed. That's right,
1: that's right. We-, we have to clean up the shards of glass uh, of, of, of my tattered reputation, and
0: yes, well, the, and, the, and I got it, you know, shout out to your fellow writers because I watched that show that it was brilliant. I know you had a ton of brilliant people
1: in that room. It was a, it was a great yeah. experience. Yeah. But one of the things that Aaron, I thought, did really well on that was there'd be scenes where you would have characters arguing about something that or discussing something. And sometimes it would be extremely specific, extremely arcane, governmental, governmentese type type discussion. And Aaron once said that it's okay if the viewers don't always know what Josh or Donna are talking about because they like Josh and Donna and they want them to get what they're trying to get. They want them to achieve their goals. And that really stuck with me. That that, And also what stuck with me with that show in general was I do feel there was an element of if you build it, they will come. Mm. That if you create something like in that world that still, yeah, you know, it was a Smart show, but it was also a show that was a very aspirational show. It was a show where you, were with a lot of likable characters, it was not a show that was hard to love. I, I think it lent itself so that people could really come to it and embrace it. I, I always get disappointed. One of the frustrations in the entertainment business right now is there's an element of it where it's overpopulated with actuaries people are constantly assessing risk and minimizing the risk. And the fact is that so many of the things that, and I get it, like in the sense that we all have to, if you have a lot of people in the executive ranks who have to protect, you know, that those are not steady jobs, but protect their jobs and all the rest nobody is going to say well why did you decide on this project if it's a project that had this a-list producer or a-list director involved even if the script itself or the idea of the show was never going to work out but um but i think that consistently the show the television shows so many of the television shows that really resonated or really were of huge quality were people taking big swings or yep. taking big chances.
0: Well, this is the irony, right? Because on one hand, our culture celebrates the disruptor, celebrates innovator, celebrates the, the maverick risk taker in whatever industry. And yet at the same time, Wall Street will kill you <laughs> you know, in your, if your quarterly results don't live up to their expectation because you're playing the long game. And the same, and this is a microcosm of what you're talking. I mean, you know, you're talking about entertainment, same thing, right? It's like these companies, there are jobs to protect, there are stock prices to protect, all kinds of motivations are driving decision making that has nothing to do
1: with the creative. That's right. And I'm at two minds on this because, on the one hand, when I'm taking out a pilot that I hope to be a television show, it's not my money that, I'm, I would, that would be put into it to put it on the air. And it is a, you know, do I think of myself as an artist? No, I I generally don't. Why not? I think of myself as a writer, as a storyteller. There's not an art in that? It's a good question. There's a craft in that. I think of myself as a craftsman. I I had a friend who once named his production company, or his like loan out company. He was a TV writer many years, uh, Workbench Productions. And I thought that was a very, uh, it was a smart reminder because it is something where It is a collaborative art. It is, you are constantly, you have so many different people. And it's one of the things I've loved about this time I've been in Toronto is watching things, a, a production designer coming in and doing a set that I would never have thought of it the way when I read the script and it looks better than I would have imagined it or the cinematographer, the cinematographers we have are so talented and they have such great, great eye for composition and photography. And well, I would never have called that, but I love that they did that and that kind of collaboration in place. So I feel that it is a collaborative field, but, and I do feel that I'm not somebody like I've worked with terrific non-writing producers and I've worked with great executives who really had ideas that made scripts better. I'm not somebody who thinks, oh, like everybody, you know, just the best situation is where nobody gets involved with my stuff and gives me complete freedom. I think sometimes I see this in movies where sometimes the worst thing is to give a director final cut in the sense that sometimes it's good to have the, there were a lot of great movies that came from the studio system in the 1930s and 1940s. But but I also do feel that the timidness that sometimes comes from what people are willing to take chances on in terms of the stories that we tell, especially I think this has happened more in movies in the last 15 years than in television, but that when you have a globalized market and the movie industry has now decided rather than making, we'd ra- we, we feel it's a safer bet that rather than making say, Fifty or sixty movies at budgets of like twenty to forty million dollars we'd rather make ten movies at budgets of a hundred fifty million we 'd rather do and it 's why you go out there and it's all superheroes all the time yeah. because I think there's an element where if you're trying to not just care about what plays in Peoria, but also what plays in Pretoria and what plays in Malaysia and all over the world, well, if you're trying to appeal to everybody at once, it's like if we had a group of 50 people and we, okay, we have to serve a meal that everybody's going to be Lowest fine Lowest common with, denominator. It's oatmeal. Yeah. And the best art to me, best art and best creative content can't appeal to everyone because you're pushing people in different directions or you're provoking someone this and you're, you know, I had a, can I, can I digress just to say like, like an ex, a, you an can do whatever you want, what my do. friend. Yes. So I had an experience and and talking about travel and I love, I've been thinking a lot cause it's been a project I've been thinking about just writing as a prose uh, piece. I've been thinking a lot about solo travel, the yeah. particular pleasures and sometimes pains of traveling yeah. on your own. Cause I really do think you're sometimes more likely to have the profound experiences that you then carry back with you and that inform your life back home when you're traveling solo. But one of my trips about three or four years ago, uh, I'd never been to Madrid. And I was in Spain for about a month. And and Madrid was actually a city that I did not – connect with the way that, you know, some cities, like when I, the minute I started walking around in Lisbon, I was like, I love this. This is my kind what a of great place. City. Just the grit and the like colors and the tiles and everything. Madrid, I just found it tougher, but the museums were great. But I had one experience there that for me justified, like was just like, this was fantastic. And cause I love Spain. And part of why I love Spain is that even is It's a city, unlike a France or an Italy, where you feel like they've spent so many hundreds of years kind of in the center and and where everybody loves to go and all the rest of it, Spain is still very much just a few decades out of fascism's shadow. And so, in everything, in food, in art, in film there, you really feel like people kind kind of stepping out and trying interesting things and kind of enthusiastically giving stuff a shot. And it's just, I just love that energy. But when I was there, I walked in, I was in the Reina Sofia, which is the modern uh, art museum there. And I just was kind of wandering around by myself. And then I walked into a gallery where there was just one painting, but it was one of the most famous paintings of of, of the 20th century. It was Picasso's Guernica. And it's that, you don't realize it until you're seeing in front of it how huge it is. And that it basically is, it's his depiction of just the horrors of this, uh, one incident uh battle uh in the middle of the spanish Civil War, and their s- grotesque faces and bodies and it was crazy but what was else I was not alone in the gallery. the other people that were in the gallery was a room full of twenty children, and they were five year olds maybe six five or six year olds and there was a docent like their te- or maybe their teacher and all the rest of it, and she was talking to them and saying, what do you see? How do you feel? What do you see in this? And for me, at first I was like, whoa, wait, these these kids are way too young to be seeing this kind of art or to be experiencing this kind of art. And there's a lot to do with like little five and six year olds. And then I kind of thought about it and I'm like, no, these are, this is their history. This is where they're from their grandfathers or probably actually great-grandfathers had fought in that war on either side and had gone through this. I thought what an amazing experience. Like I felt so lucky to have just walked in and seen that. And for me, like that kind of very specific experience of, of art or creative content that, I mean, that is where, as an onlooker, I got to see the locals and how they were experiencing that art in a very specific way, and I think that is something which there's a, that's the opposite side of the coin of a globalization that homogenizes everything, so it goes down smoothly for yeah. everybody everywhere. Right. That that I don't think we should Milk be toast. That's right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean,
1: such an interesting conversation because
0: it—you know—you're always going to have the cotton candy, right? You're always going to have that pop, mass uh, market play, yeah, all right, you're on some degree. And which, the which, point which is, which can be great. I you, love cheeseburgers, yes, yes, you know? yes. <laughs> but to your point boy have we tipped the scale like you know give me diversity give me uh, a range of choices you know uh, i don't want just milk toast all the time although milk toast has its place well know?
1: and and i'm and i also think you can have you know i mean the godfather is one of the greatest movies of all time and it was a huge huge success i don't think like i, I don't want to be somebody who says that something is of less quality because people like it. I think actually sometimes sometimes I do think that that people embrace that things are popular that are also good. Yeah. I think we can run into real problems in any kind of creative field when we think like it reminds me of I, I I'm a, I'm a huge music lover as you know, but Yes, I, it was in your intro. It was by in my the intro, way. that's uh, right. Yeah. Should probably yeah. It probably was the <laughs> first thing mentioned. <laughs> Mulomaniac. Uh, yeah, yeah, but but, in the but, house. but but it is um I have real. I always use this. So I, I'm a huge music fan, but I I hate the phrase "music snob" because I've known music snobs, and I think there's a real difference between a snob and an enthusiast. And I, I talk like like I literally. If I have friends who are listening to this, they'll be rolling their eyes at this because it is literally like one of my favorite 2 a.m. rants. But it is something where Here he goes again. Exactly where where a snob is. I love this thing. Yeah it makes me different than you and better than you and you can't have it and it right. and and this sets us apart. Yes. An enthusiast is, I love this. What do you think of it? Right. Let's use this as a vehicle for connection, a vehicle for for sharing yeah. and, and and that to me is exciting. I hate the kind of music critic or for that matter, like restaurant critic who fetishizes something specifically for its obscurity, for the fact that you don't know if somebody discovers something and then wants to share it, that's fantastic. That's really exciting. I love somebody. I love a critic who is hey this is going to blow your mind and you've never heard this because I love the hunting and gathering side of of art and content that you find something that moves you because you happen to wander into a gallery off an alley that day or were in a record store. I was in a um I was in a restaurant. In Austin, Texas, and they were playing this music that sounded so good. And it was it was a woman who was it was it was from the 1960s. It was produced by the great Alan Toussaint, who's you know, produced so much of the great New Orleans music of the from like Ernie K. Doe records to the 60s, funk music in the 70s. But there was a woman I'd never heard of. And it was a disc that had just come out that was Betty Harris, The Lost Queen of New Orleans Soul. And it was just that kind of discovery Bam. and hearing something. I was like listening
0: to that for like for like weeks. I'd be in that room so fast. <laughs> it's great. Wow. What a great city. You, my friend, I have to live vicariously through you these days because you are the world traveler that 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 I once you know, aspired to be and and was to some level. You've been you know, to New Orleans. you've been in Milwaukee. You've been in Toronto.
1: What trips do you have planned this summer? That's a good question. I mean, this year, this year, I, I kind of accepted the fact that because of Toronto throwing a monkey wrench in terms of my life here in Los Angeles yeah. in the sense of when you know you're going to be away for like three or four months, it puts like, I'm I'm currently single and it's just it, – I, I just knew, okay, this is going to be a year then. Let's make this then a year of adventures. Yeah. Let's make this a year of travel, of going to places. In some cases, places I've always wanted to go and that was certainly what Detroit was. I started the year – I just, um, my grandmother who was 97, I was extremely close to, who became an artist late in life and actually a really good one. She sculpted with marble and alabaster and power tools. That's no joke. Started in her mid sixties and it was. I think one of the reasons why she lived can to ninety seven. Not to interrupt
0: you, can, but when we post this episode on our blog and our website, uh, do you have photos of her work? We would love to give her a I shout do. out on the on that. the website. I would okay, love good. to share yeah, that. Yeah, yeah.
1: No, she she was she was really special, Selma, and she passed away literally a week before uh, Christmas. And it was right around the time I had just I just sold my house that I would lived in for 12 years in Venice. I just moved and decided to give, let's see, let's see, I moved to Laurel Canyon, an area that I grew up not far from and really have always had just this real affection for. And that's been wonderful. But I then I, I decided when I was like, where should I go for New Year's? I just, I have a great community of friends in New Orleans. So I started the year a week there and it was just wonderful. And just a city that just, really feeds me in many ways. But, um, but this year in terms of, I'm going to Montreal with my dad. Love Montreal. Yeah. It's one of my favorite cities. And I think my father and I have done this thing for about seven or eight years where we do like a long weekend together every year, just one-on-one. I'm an only child. We have a very close relationship. That's I'm, so you know, cool. It's, it's, it's really nice. And we just really, it's kind of as a good touchstone for us. And then I'm going to Quebec City uh, for the first time. I've never been there. I've always heard wonderful things. I'm going to go in August. I, I have one of my very best friends from college, lives in New York, but his family has a place in Maine. And I've been going there visiting him over 20 years now. And it was one of those things when I – this. in like not flashy kind of, but kind of bizarrely has not changed much since like the 1930s kind Love of that. town. Yep. And I remember the, fir- the first time I went there, I was like, this feels, why, am I- why do I have deja vu? Why does this feel familiar to me when I was walking around? And I told him, I said, I have deja vu. And he points to this little house across the street from his family's house, like this little shack. And he's like, see that over there? It's like that, 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 that's Winslow Homer's studio that he had painted this town uh, over, you know, <laughs> 120 years ago. And I had just seen it in these paintings and, but I think I'm going to use it as excuse to go and drive up to Nova Scotia, which I've always wanted to go to. Yep. And then I'm thinking in September, if, if, if work stuff if different pilot stuff doesn't doesn't happen go, uh, going I've never been actually to eat, I've never been to Berlin, Prague and Vienna and I've been to Ireland before it's where a lot of my mom's family's from but I've never been to both north northern Ireland the part of Britain, but also just the northern part of Ireland, the country kind of west of that and kind of wanted to just drive around and see that. So, and, and then I'm going to, this is really li- literally your listeners will be like, I don't want to listen to this guy's travel itinerary anymore. but I've never been to Zion and uh, in Utah and, and for my 45th birthday, six or seven, my closest closest, like really my band of brothers from college, uh, we're, we're going to go to, uh, to Zion for. For three for three or four days oh that's that's so, excellent how many so, countries have you been to so i'm actually the weird thing with me is i've been to i, I haven't been to a ton of different countries i i was always more of an americanist mm-hmm. like i have done a ton of travel through the united states i haven't done all 50 states i'm only a little bit over i think i'm like at 42 mm-hmm. but i've done extensive travel through yet yeah, through the us but in terms of what i have done is like i've done a a lot of spain a lot of france a lot of italy i've done scandinavia uh in different countries and then um but but also what i have been able to do is that sometimes at times when i wasn't in a relationship and one of the one of the negatives about my field of work is sometimes the instability and consistency sure. but one of the advantages is, is that i can sometimes take 3 to 4 weeks and just go somewhere yeah. And I've done that, I did that, I did a month in Argentina and Uruguay, and that was fantastic in terms of just where, when you have three to four weeks somewhere, you can really let a country under your skin and get a feel for it. Yeah. And when, when I was there in Argentina, it was the 30th anniversary of what we know of as the Falklands War, but which they, the, the islands are, I think called Las uh, Las Malvinas, And it was fascinating because In America, I mean, that was a war in, I think, 82, 83, where Argentina made the mistake of trying to start a war with Great Britain over these little islands that they said were rightfully theirs. And Great Britain kind of handed it to – I mean, did not hand the islands. They kind of – you don't get into a battle with Great Britain in 1982, was the moral of the story. But what was fascinating was in America, could you ever imagine our having a week off holiday in commemoration of Vietnam? a war we lost, we maybe should, it's maybe something that could be very healing in ways for a war that left such wounds in this country on all sides, but to suddenly be there as the country, and also it was a war that was fought by an Argentinian government, That was the government that was really authoritarian, throwing dissidents out of airplanes. I mean, awful. And in an ironic way, losing that war helped pave the way for that government to collapse and be replaced by a more democratic government. And so, what having that, being there with with my really bad Spanish, like it was my worst subject in college, but I was still, as as long as people were okay with me speaking in the present tense all the time, I actually was able to have a really good conversation. You you know enough Spanish
0: to get slapped? (laughs) Yes, exactly. That's probably
1: right. But but it was something we're getting to talk to people there about their history, about what they went through, about what this meant to them. This anniversary it was just it was just fantastic. And even though it wasn't that I came out of that writing something about Argentina, it was something that certainly gave me a lot of th- I was thinking a lot about okay nationhood uh, patriotism at what point is my country right or wrong, acceptable or unacceptable and and those are the things that that when you come out of that kind of long kind of trip that just informs your thinking where it doesn 't just you know dissipate from you the minute you set your foot back home
0: well, it seems to me that perhaps part of the core value of your trips of your travel as you study these places and meet people and study people. I mean, you're finding our common humanity, right? Like like you're able to then take that to whatever story, whatever television show, whatever movie you might be working on. And, you know, maybe it's set in, you know, 1893 in you know, some coastal town in Maine. But you are able to humanize these characters so that they're relatable. And you can do that more effectively because you've traveled more. You've talked to more people and you're seeing our our common denominators versus – those things that separate us. And I think that's gotta be invaluable. I like to think so. And I I
1: feel, I think also just being somebody who's curious about people. Like I was an only child of divorce. My parents split up when I was six or seven. To their real credit, they were both very hands-on and really uh, great, great parents. Um, But I was also a very shy little kid. Like I very much consider myself an extrovert, but that was something that really emerged later on. Sure. But I have a real memory. Like my mom, my parents met and fell in love in the anti-war movement. And so, and I got, I was surrounded by a lot of like, I grew up surrounded by anti-war posters from their times in the sixties. And we had like, we had on our refrigerator, uh, the slogan of, uh, the United Farm Workers at the time, uh, that was, uh, there's blood on those grapes which when you're four years old and you take everything literally. Uh, I, I, I then went to nursery school and a kid took grapes out and I'm like, can't eat those. There's blood on them. And they, they sent me home. So it's the danger of taking things sometimes a little bit, I love a little it. bit literally. But, yeah. but growing up around that, but also there was always this, when my mom was a journalist, there were always these you know, she didn't have much, but we would have, she would have people over for dinner. Sounds like she had principles. And she, for sure. And she, she would, we'd have people over for dinner and it'd be like writers and activists and photogs. And, and I just remember sitting around that table and seeing people laughing and arguing and telling these bullshit stories and just and eating and drinking. And I remember it was a very visceral even at like six or seven, this visceral feeling of, this is good. This is what I want. This is what I want life to be. And having that open table, like I, I having that open, like big tent, to me, the the least interesting dinner party in the world is eight people all just nodding and agreeing with each other. That I love having friends. I love... Watching friends of mine meet who would never have met otherwise and seeing them hit but it off and learn that's from each bec- other. But don't
0: you think that's becoming a lost art? I mean, people are balkanized, they're siloed, they're, 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 they're
1: afraid to talk to anybody different than them anymore. There's it's, certainly yeah. a lot of that because of the political times we yeah. live in. And I think there are real reasons for that. They're that fair. But, but I also think people can find I mean, I, I think people can find things that link them or at least ways to understand the other person in, in so many so many settings and situations. Yeah. and And for me, it's just like, are they going to be, I think what's crucial is being curious enough to want to hear someone else's other story, to understand someone else's story, because we're all storytellers. Yeah. We tell stories every day. What happened to you today at work? And then you tell a story. And I think it's it's something that, you know, we've been doing for all of humanity in terms of that, that process. But I, I feel – because you can certainly feel pretty discouraged in terms of the news, in terms of – especially when I think in the most cynical, but I think unfortunately true view, is that there are certain interests that really seek to – Exploit that the sure. siloing, and to exploit people's fears, and to exploit people's misunderstandings of each other. Would you say your travels give you hope? Yeah, because I think I mean you-
0: hope in the broadest sense. Yeah,
1: yeah, they do. Because I mean, I've spent a lot of time. When I graduated from college, I went and I spent spent a month and a half with one of my best friends. We road tripped around the South. I'd never been to the South before, but I'd certainly loved the literature, history, music, all of that. I was kind of just voracious, but it kind of started this love affair with a region that is sometimes confounding, confusing, uh, enraging, obviously an enraging history in terms of things like, like slavery, but where I have really in seeing in seeing the kindnesses of so many of the people I've met there or the curiosity or the interesting sides that Even in states that might have a high number of people whose politics I I have huge issues with, there will be other people who are more open-minded or where we can find common ground. I got very involved in an organization for the last seven or eight years out of Oxford, Mississippi, called the Southern Foodways Alliance. It sounds like people, you know, you're thinking like, what does this possibly have to do with his work as a television writer? Not much in terms of me being a television writer, but I think a lot in terms of informing, being a human being, being curious about things, but it was an organization started by a bunch of food writers and food scholars, probably about almost 20 years ago, basically using food and beverage as a lens through which to look at race, class, gender, community, history. All as in some ways an effort of reconciliation and of I think really opening, I always love the concept that, that has existed for probably decades, maybe centuries, of the welcome table. And I think that that is that when you set a, whether it's a literal or figurative welcome table where people feel that they they can sit and talk and learn and connect with each other, I think that goes a long way, and I think I also do think though there's there are things which are I don't need to find common ground with people who actively preach hate or destruction. I find those people to be real threats to who we are as a country or a people i don't I want to understand how people like the the racist protesters in Charlottesville. I want to understand them insofar as to know as to where this is coming from in our country, so we can better fight it. But uh, I'm not interested in you know let's 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 feel sympathy for people who preach preach hatred. Yeah.
0: Well, I love the idea of the welcoming table and food as a medium, uh, right? For sharing, for communication, for empathy. You know, it's very Bourdainian uh, ethic, isn't
1: it? I mean, yeah. Well, he was really interesting to me in that he kind of went, when you think, when he first, even before he wrote Kitchen Confidential, when he wrote a piece for the New Yorker that was kind of the start, I think he had written like a novel or something maybe before then, I forget the exact, uh, his, his timeline. But there was definitely something in his early stuff that had kind of the swagger of a punk rock guy of just like, you know, what do you you know, like a a kind of fuck you attitude. And I feel that when he kind of shifted in his shows to really almost when his shows became much more about the travels and connection, it was kind of fantastic to watch because it was, you did feel that you were. Not with a snob, but with an enthusiast, about somebody who was looking for vehicles for connection, of finding commonalities in seemingly alien territory. And I thought that was, that made for incredible television. And I think that, and also in part, it made for incredible television that if you were a Bourdain fan or somebody who had just been aware of him since Kitchen Confidential became a bestseller. There's something very exciting with any artist when you can clock their evolution or journey. Yeah. Because I think so much like, thank God, we're not all born fully baked. That so much of the journey that we're on is learning, changing, We're all the rivers, you can never step into the same river twice. And I think that when, and, and, and with Bourdain, it's unique because he wasn't someone that had been a public figure since he was 23. He kind of became a, a, a more prominent figure in his 40s, but still, you could still clock what his journey was. And yet, obviously, in terms of um, that, that he obviously was struggling with some things and struggling with depression in terms of uh, how he died, there was much that we just don't know and, and, and you know didn't know and still don't know. But I do think it's something wonderful with certain artists where you kind of see what their journey. I mean, like, look, there's some writers that I can see they became much more. They just became cranks later on. They became embittered. They became less interesting. But then you'll see like I was never like I've always respected Leonard Cohen. I've always enjoyed certain songs and liked, but he was never one of my obsessions. He recorded three or four albums in his 70s. Before he died, when he was already, he was struggling with his business manager had embezzled a ton of money, which had forced him to go on tour for a while. He definitely had some health ailments, but he recorded these albums where you feel these are albums that could only be recorded by a guy in his 70s and early 80s staring mortality in the eye. And they're amazing for that. And they're being informed by that. I've just been reading these novels by a, a wonderful British writer who's still alive named Jane Gardam. She wrote this trilogy called the Old Filth Trilogy. But you're re- I'm reading them and I'm like, this level of of insight is somebody in their 60s, 70s now, I think she's in her 80s, um, that she could only have. like That's – I've – Two of my favorite, favorite novelists of all time, uh, Wallace Stegner and William Maxwell, my favorite books of theirs tend to be the ones that they wrote towards the end of their lives, even though they often dealt with just just the humanism. I, I love it. Don't you love it when you see, and sometimes you want to see art or movies that make you uncomfortable or that really provoke you or feel anger and all these things. But there's also something to be said. I love it when I read something by somebody or see something where I'm like, this is great, but I also have a feeling that if I sat next to this person, I would really like them as a person. Like There's a humanism. There's a novelist, uh, Jennifer Egan. She's written a bunch of novels, but but I remember reading the one that was the her biggest bestseller is a book called Visit from the Goon Squad. And I remember reading it and coming out of that book feeling like, you know, I also feeling this is just a really good person behind this where the art has a humanism to it, a curiosity and open-heartedness to it without being saccharine or sentimental or cheesy right. or manipulative. Like we know when somebody is just trying to kind of push those buttons in us, we're savvy. So so I I I love that. That kind of humanism to me is a is a quality that 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 I'm I'm a sucker for
0: in art. So Take us through your practice. I mean, as a writer, as a uh, busy, productive, you know, uh, often uh, employed writer, you know, you have to be incredibly, you know, rigorous and disciplined and focused. And so, you must have, you know, after all these years, you must have carved out a routine, a practice, an approach for yourself, for your creative
1: process. Take us through that. I know – it's one of those things where you wish you knew then what you know now and, and and what works for you. And sometimes it's the Jedi mind tricks that you know you have to play on yourself to make yourself the most productive as possible. Yeah. I know that if I don't, I envy friends of mine who are the guys who can be or the gals who can be up until four in the morning working. That's never been what I can do. I, I love sleep. I think it's extremely valuable. I'm asleep right now. No, it's, it's exactly. That's, 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 <laughs> I, I, just, just, I've mastered just now. the ability to host this podcast while yeah, yes, asleep. As well I'm doing better than usual then. I thought I would have put you to sleep about 40 <laughs> minutes ago. So I love kind of banker's hours. I love getting started on writing at like eight or nine. And if, by then, it's just one of those things where if I built up a head of steam, anything after lunch or in the afternoon becomes gravy. And it depends on where I'm at in the process on something. Like if I am in the middle of, let's say, research is its own different thing. If let's say if I'm in the middle though of actually like I'm writing the first draft of something. I've written an outline. I know what this pilot script is going to be or this feature is going to be, and now I'm now I'm writing it. I know it's it's accepting the fact that also that sometimes I just need to get the bad version down. That sometimes you can sit and struggle where you're like, I can't get this. And instead, once you get something down, like a scene that you look at it and you're like, that's bad. (laughs) That's a really bad scene you just wrote. But it at least then lets you say, well, why is that bad? Yeah. What am I trying to convey? How do I do-? it breaks the um the block you might have to understand or to see? And and sometimes it means getting a bad full draft done. Sure. It's the fr- it's a phrase a lot of writers use. It's not a pretty one, the vomit draft. Yeah. But then it at least gives you the clay with which you can play, rearrange things. How can I do this? How can I change that? I waste a lot of paper in that. I really believe that i see things that i've written differently Uh, i catch things if i have a printout version than if i am um uh just reading it on a computer screen on on everything all the time and just being able to see that redlining it with literally often with a red pen makes a huge difference for me i usually prefer i have used shared workspaces before Mm -hmm. i think sometimes that's been happy and healthy for me where I think the trick, and I wonder how you feel about this, because I know you often will work from home too. Yep. And I think what's what's great about your office, which we're sitting in now, your your, your studio, yes, it's part of your house, but there actually is a journey that, that you have to go up the stairs to get to this place. And I do think like I've had friends who have their home offices in like a grandmother apartment in the garage. Yeah. And even though they are walking outside and it's just like a you know, a ten yards. It makes a difference, a reset, because I think it's very easy. It's not always for me. It, it doesn't always feel healthy to be working in the same place where I'm sleeping, right. living, relaxing, having a good time, etc. So I have used shared workspaces in the past when I'm working on someone else's show. Usually, there's an office there that we use. But in terms of my own work, I, I also love taking so – I will sometimes take a laptop and go to a. Go, go to a coffee house or go to a restaurant. I love when I'm in the redlining phase of editing something. I will definitely often do that in like a restaurant and just over lunch. I can. I, I'm able. I can't work with a TV on, but I'm weirdly able to work with music, including music with lyrics. And I'm able actually the white noise of just commotion of people. Like I'm able to actually still work with that. I have some friends where they need the noise reduction headphones. They need complete and utter silence. Uh, I'm lucky in that, in that way, but there's, you know, so, so th- I think that, that, that gives some sense of how.
0: So, but when you're traveling, are you journaling? How are you uh,
1: capturing your inspiration on the road? That's a great question. Cause actually one of the things I've wanted to do in this year's travels is do more, but I've never been a great journaler and I always feel self-conscious about that. I wish I had been, a better journaler. What I do, my one marketable skill is that I'm a really fast typist. How many words a minute? You know, at one point, you know, I'm kind of like the uh, old, old rodeo guy who's like, who's, you know, seen it all, but, but isn't as fast as he was in his 20s. No, you know, I, at one point, I think I did like, I was at like, I, I could do 130, 25. Very
0: impressive. It, it, it was, yes. you know, the,
1: the only people wow. who seem to be, faster were people who were trained as classical pianists. Pianists are always just the fastest typists. But it was something which I think it was the. the by the, the uh, way, my friend, I want to just point out to
0: our to our listeners, like you're you're a muscly guy, right? Your hands are, are fairly meaty there, man. I mean that in the best sense. Like the fact that you were pecking out 130 words a minute with those with,
1: with these those sausage meatballs. fingers. No, no, no. This is actually like like Scott is, Sourdough has now actually <laughs> stepped on the the physical defect. I am most self conscious. Oh, you of. and Donald Trump. Uh, I, I am. I am. It's it's why I criticize Trump for many things, but I never call him a short. Fingered Bulgarian. (laughs) I am a uh, six foot three man. Why don't I just say that at different times my weight has probably matched linebackers in the NFL, and yet I have the short peasant hands of my my forefathers and they're fairly crooked. I just accepted like I, I they are not, I was never going to uh, be a, a classical guitar player. I mean, it was just uh, now in first dates. I'll just keep my hands hidden <laughs> in so, my okay. pockets. Okay.
0: So, so, so is Andre f- Segovia f- f-
1: finger extensions, maybe I'll get, I'm sure, sh- I'm sure
0: there, I'm sure there's some doctor out there who does them. Okay. So, so Andre Segovia, you will not be, no. um, no. however you can knock out some words on a type the that's right, right. right. Okay. That's so- right. So I could always say, so,
1: it, so it always meant like my dad joked it was like you're never going to have to pump gas for a living. I could always get work for yes. as as a temp. But part of the typing so fast is I write so much. My handwriting is pretty slow, and and you get impatient. Yeah. So I will type stuff sometimes and notes and thinking things and also writing emails that feel like letters to people yeah, right. where I keep that kind of, and, and weirdly I turned, I I've used sometimes my Instagram feed as a writing exercise where even I'll have an image, but then I'll really describe, either try to uh, capture the portrait of this friend that I've taken a picture of or describe what happened on this. And that has acted actually more than anything as a journal. I don't like to use it for work related things. I don't like, you know, I, I tend to be private about not wanting to like post photos unless I'm, you know, unless I'm in a serious relationship and even then trying to be choosy about it. I but still won't let Channing, uh, my wife, uh, post
0: photos of me. I just won't do no, it. No,
1: I understand. Well, it's you know, it's, it's like the, is, is it the old, uh, you know, Navajo, uh, the photographs, uh, steal a little bit of soul in terms of the, um, on the travels. I mean, what I have done is like, I've taken, sometimes like if I've, let's say I've pitched a pilot and sold it and then I have to write it, I will then sometimes, and again, this is something that is an upside of a downside of times when I'm not in a relationship, but I've gone and lived in San Francisco for two or three weeks or rented a house in like the central coast or something, or gone in, um, you know, and I could sublet my place here or whatever, but I did once, I mean, I had been in New Orleans many times before, but the time that I really deeply fell in love with it was when I had a month in New Orleans in late October, November, and I had sold two pilots, I had to write them. And I basically rented a different Airbnb in a different neighborhood each week. And really got to know it was writing during the day and then at night just having great meals, seeing friends, going to see music traveling like and and that and that just felt that felt wonderful, and it felt on some level, I think there was a part of me that certainly like growing up like you know. Books like when I was maybe um, twelve. I mean, you grow up in I grew up in Los Angeles. I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a native but a prodigal son who moved back here. And I think that you grow up in California, they put you on a steady diet of John Steinbeck very early on. And I remember Travels with Charlie being a book that I just thought, boy, this sounds great. This nonfiction book about him traveling around America with his dog in in, in a trailer. And I just thought, like, I definitely the the American road trip has always been something and I know you have a lot of that love for for that kind of oh, yeah. travel too but that's always kind of stuck with me and so but but that that fun of like you know of of going somewhere and writing while I'm there and that has been a part of the mythology of writers and wanting to be there from 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 when I was like younger and first started thinking hey this is both something I enjoy and it's one of the few things I'm decent at maybe I should do this. So, that's a good segue.
0: So, last night when I was doing a little poking around, prepping for this little chat of ours today, I raised a question. So, apparently in January of 08, uh, you wrote an essay about why you write.
1: Oh, that was during the uh, Writers Guild strike and somebody had kind of was asking different Writers Guild members. I I later served on the board of, of, of the union, but at the time I was just spending a lot of time walking around picketing, and and I wrote an essay for that. Right, this
0: and, and I loved it, and it was why you write, and you break, you starting at the very beginning as a young child, you break down all the reasons as to why you write, because of this, because of that, because of this. So, fourth paragraph, fifth paragraph from the end, you say that, uh, you write, uh because it was one of the only three things I was ever good at. And I couldn't figure out how to earn a living making mixed tapes and the third thing is illegal. Yeah. So the question is, what's the third thing? I'm trying to remember. <laughs> what was the illegal I'm I, trying
1: to remember because I've always been I was always kind of the the goody of, of, of my uh friend groups and stuff. I was I was Everybody's I, I, got
0: a dark side, my friend. Yeah,
1: but I was always kind of a little square. I was always, you know, I was always kind of the, you know, uh, older. I'm trying. I'm trying to remember what what the what the illegal thing, <laughs> See, thing would have no, been. No,
0: no, no. What you're really doing is you're being very smart. Not <laughs> yes, to divulge this and because this because the statute yes, of
1: limitations. Yes, uh, I've long accepted I'm never going to be a Supreme Court justice, so so we're not we're not going to run into into a problem there. No, <laughs> the, the, this uh, reminds me of my favorite scene in one
0: of the, my favorite scenes in Stripes when the recruiter says to Bill Murray, um, "Have or to, to the." to our heroes have, have either one of you been convicted of a felony and bill murray looks at him looks at him and goes convicted no never convicted." <laughs>
1: that's a pretty great
0: film yeah yeah right but yeah man well you know so you know as a creative professional um you know we were talking earlier about the proliferation of channels and content i mean as a writer it's a good time to be a writer. I mean, writers are in demand. But at the same time, you sort of referenced maybe some anxiety, right, about this current state uh, that we're in, in terms of the business. Um, where do you see it all going? I mean, really, by the way, the writers are striking right now. They just fired their agents, you know, for packaging fees. So, so you know, what's take us through it. I'm
1: better as a analyst of the way things are than a prognosticator of where it's going to end up. Mm-hmm in part because I think things, it's really hard. I mean, I feel like time and time again, things zig rather than zag in terms of how it all goes. Yes, it is a time where if you look and say there are more shows than ever before, that must be great for writers. And it is on some level, except if you look at most of those shows, they're not 22 episode seasons like the shows we grew up in or like most shows I think the great majority of shows on the traditional broadcast networks, NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox. I think a lot of those shows, if they're successful, will be twenty-two episodes. Many are still, many are smaller, like twelve episode runs. But writers get paid. They might be spending just as much time, maybe a year, putting together a season of a show. But they're getting. We get paid. The great majority of us a per episode fee. So, and what's also happened in the advent of cable and streaming is that often we're signing these contracts where we're attached to a show where they, if they want to keep us, they can keep us, but we don't get paid between seasons of a show and in traditional broadcast network shows that might mean you would have three or three months off or two months off between seasons of a successful show. But with something on, I mean, like I think some of those Game of Thrones seasons, there was a year and a half in between. And if you were contractually kept from working on something else during that period, yes, you could write a movie, but you can't work on other TV shows. It's a time where I think people could find these statistics pretty easily if they go to the Writers Guild of America website. But where even though on the one hand, things are better than ever for writers, there are some things that are real economic challenges. And that's for TV writers. Screenwriters have dealt with basically an enormous collapse and consolidation of the opportunities and work they do, that so much of that has vanished because of what we were talking about earlier about fewer movies are getting made, which means fewer scripts are being developed, which means fewer writers are getting paid to write those scripts. Now, there is more fluidity in the sense that we used to be much more like t v writers did t v and movie writers did movies, and a lot of those walls have broken down in part because they had to because t v was a much was was this ready potential revenue stream for feature writers who were watching so much of their field dry up. so it's a time where look there's there's an element where it's so easy. I always say this to young writers starting out. It's so easy to be focused on where your career is not on what you have not yet gotten to do, that it's important to not feel self-satisfied, but to clock and look in the rearview mirror and look like for me, like I've, I think the first TV staff job I had was in 2002, was West Wing in 2002. So it's something where suddenly, like I've been doing this for 17 years. And I think that you're told again and again, and there is ageism. I think half-hour writers face more of it than hour-long writers, but there is ageism in this business. And I once heard somebody say, nobody's career is ever longer than they think it's going to be. That I think that it's just something happens and things get cold or there's a shift or you're seen as somebody… Someone says you said you were difficult or someone, who knows? But I also am a big believer that you can, the best thing about what we do versus I think other parts of the entertainment business is that you can always write something new. And there's time and time again, there've been stories of writers whose careers had gotten cold or stale and they wrote something that reinvented themselves. And I've certainly felt in my career that so many times the biggest moves forward for me happened right on the heels of something that was a great setback, you know, that like, you know, something where I getting fired off that job meant that I wrote this script that changed everything. And I I think it's something where it's, it's, I think people are still going to, you know, you'll, you'll read the stories. It's like, You read the stories again and again of like, is the business dying? Is this and that? No, it's, people want content. People want stories. Like people can say, do the kids today, they're so focused on their phones and they're texting and this and that. Yeah, but I do think that it might, there might be shifts in how stories are told, but people are still going to, we've always done since sitting around campfires and, you know, and, and people- it doesn't matter if it requires a device. I do think the shift that has happened for that really makes an impact on on movie writers and people in the movie business whole. And it's a and it's a and it's a shift that bums me out. Is that if we are more likely wanting to enjoy something for conveniences sake in our home, on our phone, on our tablet, that one of the things to me that movies always gave us that was terrific and the TV can only really give us when we have the ritualistic pleasure of gathering friends together to watch the, you know, Sopranos or watch that weekly or watch GOT or whatever it is, is that, is that feeling of gathering together in a place and, you know, and, and laughing. Or getting scared together, and it's why like it's interesting. I feel like horror movies continue to be something that does well because people it does feel scarier in a crowded room in the dark and you're watching this thing on the big screen. Obviously, all the superhero movies do well because people still get a spectacle from that that isn't going to be the same at, at no matter how big their home TV is, but to me, it's like a lot of the movies I that made me want to write and made me want to write for this for screens were films that don't get made anymore. Like, like whether it's like a dra- like dramas or just even things that are like, like would a movie like broadcast news get made today? Probably not. Would a movie like tender mercies with Robert Duvall get made today? Probably not. I mean, you don't have, I mean, you used to have Sundance, which kind of would bring out a lot of, you know, interesting things. But even though Sundance still exists and, and thrives in some way, you don't have the indie film market isn't what it once was because again, people are so focused on these on, 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 on having these global home runs. So, it's, it's a, and, and, and that's a shame because I do think it's something where I have so many of my memories I love of being a kid, Going, going to movies or seeing because I certainly I'm not someone you run into a lot of people in in television who are like yeah I'm just doing this I, I'm a playwright or I never watch TV but I'm doing this because I can and look that's fair that's great but for me I grew up in you know an o- only child of divorced parents Uh, I was a poor athlete I was uncoordinated and my parents worked I watched a lot of TV. And you know, and some of that was like predictable, like sitcom, different stroke stuff. And some of it was like watching like 30 something when I was like 12 years old. And I've always had an affection and love for that and movies, like I grew up, like we had something before HBO, there was a local movie channel in Los Angeles called the Z Channel. And I would, like, just watch these, like, watch movies that probably I shouldn't have been watching at, like, six or seven. <laughs> Boy, but did you grow up fast. E- exactly. Right, exactly. That that gets the illegal part. Right. Um, but, but yeah, so it's it's a – so this is an extremely rambling way of answering your question. But, but, it, but, but I do think it's, like, of where this is going to go, I'm sure it's one of those things, like, with anything else that, that what so often happens in a capitalist system is that – some players fall to the wayside in terms of the venues that not all of these, um, uh, networks or streamers are going to survive. I also think that the potential always with multiple outlets is that different outlets can appeal to different tastes and different niches. To me, that was one of the, I mean, it it is a crazy thing. It's like, Yes, you have all of these different places, but sometimes you have a project. where you'll talk about it with your agents, and and they'll be like, "Okay, uh, there's three places we can pitch that." You're like three places, but 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 there's like twenty different. Ne- yeah, but they don't want to hear this, and this they don't do period pieces, and they don't do right. dramas, and they don't do. So it just suddenly your choices become. But at least that means that in, you know then where to go and to find the thing, the shows that are more your tastes or, or the kinds of things you love or, 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 or enjoy. And I think the best thing for most of us is just that you, there is, Oh, you cause cause we all like most of us love, even if the, you love comedies, you don't only love comedies you might love and you might love very specific comedies and, but there's also these dramas you love and maybe you like uh, cop shows and, and, and that's the thing where it gets back to actually that idea of a big tent. Of where that to kind of let it all in, take it all in, you go to an art museum, there'll be pieces where you, you look at it and you're like i don 't get it, but I always feel if you go to a museum and you see one thing that sticks with you and that you 'll be thinking about that's a great that's that was a great visit Brilliant. like I just had that I was in London unexpectedly, like the best thing you know the best fun they, 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 you're suddenly. On a Tuesday, I didn't know I was going to be in London. And on Thursday night, I was on a red eye from Toronto to London. Situation good where- good be single sometimes. <laughs> yeah, well, this, 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 was, this was, and it was a work trip in the sense that an actor whose work I like uh, had really loved a, whose work I love, loved a pilot I had written. So I was going there to meet with him and, and my, my producer on a project but that was one meeting and so I got into London on Friday and, uh, and was completely fried, didn't sleep at all on sure. the plane, had lunch with a friend, slept, had dinner with friends, slept, but then on Saturday, wandered, went over to had, went over to the Tate Modern and saw there was like a Jenny Holzer show and I saw a bunch of things there that I was just, I had never seen of hers and I love her stuff and there was a Nan Golden show of her photography and I love her stuff and and just those feelings of being I always loved the phrase and I think it was it, it, I think it was a title of a novel maybe a Michael Cunningham book I might be completely misremembering but I love the phrase at home in the world. Yes. And I think that is something that as a creative person I think we want to strive to feel that way. Yeah. That even when we're made to feel uncomfortable which can be great that we feel like this is that this is all my place, that this is all kind of my sandbox and that fertile place to kind of seek inspiration, seek therapy, seek solace, seek, but more importantly, I think seek connection. That I think more than anything is like why, why we're here, right? I mean, it's whether it's love, family, friendship, the connections we work is, is, is connecting with people. And, and I feel like that to me is key in terms of the, the creative pursuit.
0: Well, speaking of the creative pursuit, what I appreciate in terms of your practice and your approach is that you've, it seems to me, my words, not yours, but it seems to me you've figured out a way to really enjoy the process, right? So, it's, it turns out, right, the older you get, the more you realize it's, it's the journey, that we're on right, the you know, and you know it turns out the maybe the looking for the gold is it turns out more
1: satisfying than actually finding the gold I think that's really smart, and I think for me part of that was also because the hardest thing, the hardest lesson for me to learn in Hollywood was that it was not a meritocracy that I would see people who didn't deserve success, who had huge success. And I had friends who were talented and great, who just where the timing just wasn't there, or something just didn't click. Yep. And my version of that is that, like, I have not been lucky yet to have created my own show and gotten it on the air. I have written, like, literally. I, I had a friend who joked that I was the Susan Lucci of well-received, unproduced pilots in terms of the uh, – for, for, for the younger listeners out there, that she was the woman who was nominated for a Daytime Emmy Award, I think, 17 very, times. Very, very sexy woman. Yes, by very, the way. very attractive, yes. very attractive. But given that, I, part of me felt like, okay, yes, does it – and I'm glad it breaks my heart if something doesn't get made because if something doesn't break your heart, then you weren't invested, then you're a hack. Yeah. And I don't, I never want to be a hack. But what I do, what I have learned is okay, this project didn't go forward, but God, I really loved researching it and learning this, or I really enjoyed writing this, or I know I've done this long enough to know that that script could lead to something else, or I've certainly had scripts that then seemingly died only to come back again. And it's just like, like, I wrote a pilot for HBO a few years ago, and it was adaptation of a Carl Hyacon novel who write, was a great guy who writes these really funny, kind of Elmore Leonardy crime novels, all set in South Florida. And it was for the actor Michael Keaton. And it was um and, and it was probably right before Michael did Birdman. And in that process, like I had these, I remember I was, I did a road trip on my own dime, HBO didn't pay for it, but where I traveled through Florida and at one point was meeting with Carl Hyacin at, we were talking in a tiki bar on a beach in Vero Beach, Florida. And he's telling me stories about his old friend, Warren Zevon, who's one of my all time favorite musicians. Shout out Warren. And, and I just sat there and feeling like, okay, remember this. This is one of the good days. This is one of your days where what you do is really really fun. Yes. And and so I mean the process is huge. And and then on that process like I got to work with an actor who was one of my favorite actors growing up and who turned out to be a great guy to me. And it was one of those things when that project died. Who was the actor? Michael Keaton. Oh, okay. And Mike. I thought I thought to myself, um I'm never going to hear from Michael Keaton again, but that was really lovely. And no, actually, he's really remained kind of a big brother type figure, and has been incredibly just like kind and cool and 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 great. And and so it's it's something where the process is you can get so tied up in terms of okay the things you can't control, right. and so what I can control is I learned early on like. I need to love or be excited about the thing I'm going to be writing. Every time I've tried to write something that I wasn't passionate about, it showed. And it showed like I'm not I'm not interested in shows that are about forensic detectives and the mutilation of women. That's just not I I don't feel like that's putting good good juju out into the water like So usually when I'm writing something, it might not be an idea that I came up with. Maybe a producer has an idea or they have a book they want to adapt. But I can see something in there that excites me and I'm like, I can make this my own and I can be really excited about this and I can relate to this and I want to play in this field. Like I, that's often been like my, my favorite situation so that when, and also here's the thing, I'm getting paid for it. Yes, it's easy to get frustrated when a project doesn't go forward. But on the other hand, like as a friend of mine said, like, you know, we're getting paid to create and to write something that we're excited about. Like how how lucky are we? Like you almost well, I have some friends of mine who we almost like turn to each other conspiratorially. Like I have a um I, I had this inter- I have a friend who I know from originally getting her to uh Run for the Writers Guild board when I served on it. Andrea Burloff. Andrea just directed uh, a film coming soon with an amazing cast. It's like Melissa McCarthy and Tiffany Haddish, but she wrote. She was nominated for an Oscar for writing co-writing the script of Straight Outta Compton. And terrific person, really bright. But it was one of those things where, like, I, like, like, we've talked about this before. Of just like, there's a part of like where you feel like it's not cool to say. Hey, this is it's kind of fun what we get to do, and and you know this might again be me being square, but like I don't love everything about the industry in which I work, but I do love what I do for a living, yep. and I love coming up with stuff, and I love the freedom where trying to do other forms like I've done. It's not how I make my living, but I've done food writing just for fun using different muscles i'm playing with this idea of doing this prose project travel memoir doing something different trying things trying things different and i think that's key also i think to a creative lifestyle is mixing it up it's like there's that phrase i wish i could remember somebody should google it and see somebody somebody had a great line which was happiness is equilibrium shift your weight <laughs> right and i think that's really true that that when you feel staid or stale like you got to mix things up in 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 some way even if just kind of how do i make this interesting how do i
0: yeah i mean uh, i'm laughing because that Statement about uh, uh, happiness is equilibrium. Is equilibrium? Uh, I'm I'm smiling about that because that's exactly why I dance so much. You know, I mean, you can't <laughs> you can't be unhappy if you're dancing. Well, that's right, yeah. and and, 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 you know, and
1: that's also just knowing things. And when you dance, is there a different experience for you when you're dancing among people than when you're dancing in the Billy Idol parlance by, by yourself?
0: <sighs> um, I'm sure, right? I mean, you know, like I, I think. There's an abandon. Yeah. There's a freedom. There's a community, a com- I think. You know, uh, uh, you know, I think more than anything, I love dancing with my kids, first and foremost. That's lovely. Um, you know, the the old uh, bumper sticker, families that pray together, stay together. My, my version says
1: families that dance together, stay together. Um, well, do you feel like one of the great things about kids when they're dancing is they haven't yet developed – as pronounced a feeling of embarrassment or shame that we all get of like, am I looking silly out there on the dance floor that there is a lack of inhibition. And that to me is so good to touch into, just so good to tap into that of like to see, to see kind of kids in that, like, and like in that state. And I like, like I'm a, I'm a, I accept the fact that when I dance, I might bring up images of the ballerina hippopotamuses in uh, Fantasia, <laughs> but I love… Is it the uh, tutu? Yeah, exactly. Maybe I shouldn't be wearing the tutu in <laughs> the pure wedding. But no, but it's something where like I, I am not – if there's a wedding and there's a good band playing or if the DJ is putting prints on, like yes. I'm going to dance. Oh, yeah. And if somebody has an issue with that or if I look silly, that's on mm-hmm. them because I think the best is like when you're really, you've been to New Orleans. Have you ever been to a second line parade? Never. So, I'll describe it to you because it's one of my very favorite things about the city. And if anybody's going, they should go. And I have a friend, I have a wonderful friend in New Orleans named Pablo Johnson. Spells it as if it were P A B L E A U X. And he's many things, he's a journalist, he's a cook, but he's also a wonderful photographer who is taken beautiful photos of these second line parades. And in fact, had a show here in Los Angeles, at the UCLA Fowler Museum that was just up for three or four months. Mm-hmm. But what the second line parades are is that New Orleans has this great tradition of about, I think about 30 or 40 of these social clubs that are all in different neighborhoods all across the city predominantly historically African-American, though sometimes uh, there'll be some other faces in them too. And one, every Sunday, except for like a few weeks in the summer when it's just too hot, uh, it's a different social club's time to do their second line parade. And it is usually, it is a parade that is, they will have bands and brass bands and, and playing just this great music. And they will have members of the club decked out almost like what you remember from like step shows and stuff, like decked out and these great outfits that people wore, great colors. And there'll be sometimes like a, a royal court and, and 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 like you know and, and and a floats, but unlike any parade that I've ever been to or seen, you as a spectator are not just a spectator; you're a participant. And what happens is that everybody joins in the parade. Everybody just, they're not just the members of the social club, that people are all just walking in and this feeling of just walking in this parade, listening to the music. People are, you know, drinking beers because it's New Orleans. And, and just this feeling of community and dancing and nobody giving a shit about how you look or how you dance or any of that. And the first one I ever went to was at the end of that month, I lived in New Orleans. I had somehow never gone. Nobody had taken me on previous trips. I'd been in New Orleans probably two or three times, four. And Pablo took me down because he was going to be photographing it to a second line parade that was in the Lower Ninth Ward. So, the neighborhood in New Orleans that was most, most hurt and destroyed by, by Katrina. And, and really became the focal point for a failure in the US government to hold its side of a social contract with its own people. Like the images we saw then were just horrifying this is happening in America. And this was probably, this was in I think 2000, this was probably like five or six years after Katrina had happened and maybe maybe even a little more. But you'd still had in that neighborhood, you had you had some houses that were like the brand new houses that were built and you had some plots of land that were just still grass and just had just gone back to nature. And you had some houses that still had those spray painted crosshatches that we remember from, from the Katrina disaster when people said how many bodies were in the building, how many people were, how many corpses, how many people living was still there on some of those buildings. And so here was this neighborhood that had seen the worst and people were dancing and singing and listening to this music as this long kind of parade of just a random assortment of people just kind of wound its way through this neighborhood. And it was just such it, – It that was when I was like, okay, this city has me for life. Yeah. Like I will always love New Orleans and I appreciate – I know it's, it's dysfunction and it's corruption and all the rest of it, but I – I love that for life. And to me, when I think of dance in its purest form, and that, that is what I think of. Like when you talk about your family, you dancing with your kids, I think of that in that same step of something that just happens not because of any other reason other than you're feeling it. That we're feeling that we are such feeling human beings and feeling it and enjoying it and feeling joy. Well, we're emotional creatures, m- yeah. emotional
0: animals, and our bodies were meant to move. That's right, you know. And the only thing we can control in this world is our attitude. That's right, right. And if you somehow can move and and uh, in a way. That uh, expels the you know anger and you know and, and, and heightens the the happy, yeah. um, why not you know and you know getting it back to what you were saying and you know within the context of being a, a writer in Hollywood, there's so much that you can't control and you know so you have to focus on those things that you can control, which is of course you know the development of your craft and the development of your attitude.
1: Yeah, and there's and there's that's right, and then also making choices in terms of how you live your life so that you don't create the distractions and stress, like to not, it is not a sexy thought, but it is true to like, to not, to live below your means. Yes. To Because you're not, we we always say that we're not getting paid just for the times we're working, but also for the times we're not working. And to be smart like that, and to not just be kind of like, you know, burning hundred dollar bills as you go walking down the avenues. High roller. Uh, Exactly. You know, so, so I think that's, is, is knowing what you can control and also like one of my very favorite, I think it's either a Southern phrase or it might've been, I feel like I first heard it actually from the late uh, Texas political writer, Molly Ivins, but is dance with them, that brung you. Mm, And what I love about that phrase is it's like, but we certainly did a lot of in our teen years and our, in our twenties is being drawn to the people who just kind of were tolerant of you. Like we felt it was some sort of major achievement, like when they threw you table scraps. And there's a certain point when you realize, oh, wait, it's not a downside if this person likes me or if this person is excited about being with me, I'm not earning something. like I don't need to earn somebody's approval. And to be, to to, to, to choose to spend time and to be around with people that love you for who you are, who appreciate the things you do that, where you're learning from them or you're, you know, that we're, where you enjoy things together and connect over that. Because obviously in the field where you work, you're gonna run into some people where you're just like, hey, that person's just not my, per- my people. Right. And that's okay. That's right. And hopefully, you do a good enough job where they might be people who you just see the world differently. Hopefully, they're not toxic people. I've certainly one of the things that's caused me to work do a lot of pilot development over the years is because I just sometimes sometimes got sick on working on uh, staffs of shows, wondering, okay, which one of these people is going to be the sociopath. <laughs> Because all it takes is one, and it can really color your experience on a television staff. But that feeling of just—it's one thing if somebody and and this is—it's funny. I feel. Do do you ever feel that sometimes the lessons you learn in work are also some of the lessons you learned in your relationships or romantic relationships? A hundred
0: percent.
1: I mean, like it. Well, and
0: it's it's yeah. I mean, there's so many. A lot of I call it cross training. That's right. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I almost thought you were going with Ghostbusters crossing the streams, which is also. It's also true. <laughs> you don't um, want to do that. Yes. Do not cross the streams. It's what, like, I know the things that I need to work on or the things that are, are like, that are, you know, which with the help of like therapy at different times over the years have been helpful in terms of making myself as good a human being as I, as I can be. It's crazy sometimes whether it's in work or in a relationship where somebody is being critical of something that you know isn't one of your detriments, but it's actually one of the good things you bring to the table. And and when you feel like, hey, like, no, actually that's actually like that's actually something that a lot of people have, have liked or or I think it's a positive thing that I do this or I bring that. Right. And it's just, we're all really delicate little creatures and all of us are informed by our like childhoods. To say, and-
0: yeah, yeah. I like to say just because, you know, just because you have an opinion doesn't make you right. That's right. You know, and this is let's just keep this in perspective here. Yes. Um, and in fact, I remember a very particular meeting with my boss years ago when he was giving me a critique. And I basically said to him, I said, well, you're entitled to your opinion. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't mean I have to agree to it. Yeah. Uh, he didn't like that. No, no, no that could be a yeah, yeah. challenge.
1: <laughs> my, my favorite corollary is that a friend was railing about the democratization of opinions on things like Amazon reviews and Yelp reviews and all the rest of it with good reason. Um, because there is something to be said for reviews from people who actually have expertise On something like it's in his, his line was just because you have an opinion doesn't mean the world needs to hear it. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's doesn't mean it's justified, like taking up bandwidth somewhere. Well, it
0: feels like, you know, uh, you know, our, our founding fathers knew that to have a healthy functioning democracy, you needed a few key elements, a few major ingredients. One of those ingredients was an educated citizenry. That's right. right. And do opinions matter when people don't understand what the fuck they're talking about? You know what I mean? Like, That's like right. this is getting back to the point. It's but, like great that everybody can, can express their opinions, but unfortunately it turns out that, you know,
1: 80% of those opinions aren't well informed. And and I don't mind, like I'm very much, something I actually love about the entertainment business is that it's not unlike some industries, one that puts a precious uh, priority of pedigree. That- I've really seen that they, you know some of the smartest people or most talented people I've known are not people who graduated from de blah.
0: Right, and I, and in I fact, so- the opposite is true too. Often, I know some <laughs> I know some people who from the Ivy League that uh, you know I wouldn't trust with that. Know, that's right. You
1: know. But I think that there's it means being an educated person doesn't mean pedigree so much as it means being informed that anybody can kind of learn and read and engage and decide, I'm going to know what the hell I'm talking about. And to me, one of the most frustrating things of the last before Donald Trump, I mean, I feel that Sarah Palin was kind of the bellwether in some ways this was going to have was that a hatred of elites. I understand, like, I think that when there is a enormous, um, a class stratification that we're having in this country. That's a real problem. And, but when people go from a hatred of the 1% to also just a dismissal of like, we see this happening now with the attack on climate science, that's just to me insane. There is no issue to me that is a more important issue right now, anywhere in the United States in, in the world than global warming and, and climate change.
0: A lot of people in Kansas right now are really, uh,
1: you know, they're, they're feeling that pain That's in, a, right. in a big way. That's exactly right. And And to me, the idea of let's dismiss people because they know what they're talking about right. is so counterintuitive towards just logic, towards what makes sense. Instead of saying, hey, <laughs> These are people who have done this for a living. Yeah, well, and studied and it's yeah. you know, it's it's that that to me is troubling.
0: Well, it's we've lost over the last 10 years or so, right? We I've heard, you know, how we of course lost our faith. Uh maybe we first lost our faith in our employers because we learned that contracts could be broken and you know, not renew your contract or or cut your wages or whatever then we eventually learn to lose our faith in in the church right because of course you know turns out a lot of priests are pedophiles and you know so on and so forth so there's not a whole lot of reason to believe in organized religion anymore then you know then you start looking at your government for various reasons and uh, now we're you know taking aim at so-called experts you know and it's like what what it's what institution you know
1: where is this going this is the <laughs> this is a very slippery slope oh, i agree and i think that there's been a concentrated effort within this administration in Washington to kind of take an ax to so many other institutions. The idea for me that a Republican administration would be attacking the FBI. I mean, it's just, it just feels bonkers. Like, like somebody who's supposedly law and order, but in attacking the FBI for no reason other than just to protect their own hide. Yes. Right. The attack on the press I mean, to me, that is the most, one of the scariest things for me about what's happened in this country is that forgetting even just attacks on the press, the fact that journalism, which acts as such an important stopgap against so much of the corruption and so many of the neer do in our society, the the I once read an, uh, an analysis of the shrinking of what was happening in cities as newspapers started folding and failing. It's like without watchdogs, there's no barking, right. and not going to hear these things. And it's and it's like that we used to live in times like when I was growing up in L.A. Even you know you you had the Los Angeles Times, but you also had the Los Angeles Herald Examiner, and by having two papers. It was the ultimate, it was a great example of capitalism at work in a positive way that you would be trying to do a better job because you had competition. And as suddenly, and you know, there was back in those days, you know, back in the days of like DC and New York would have like so many different newspapers. There'd be morning papers and evening papers. And, and one of the things that the internet has done in part by what it did to, the classified advertising market, which so many newspapers depended on. Now admittedly newspapers also made the mistake of not seeing this change as it was happening and getting on it and, and being digitally savvy to, to, to be able to shift with the times. But um, I mean, I think that what we're, our best hope is the places like the guy who bought the LA times, like Bezos buying the Washington post that you see, people who see that owning a newspaper is not a way to make a huge amount of money but is something important and essential to the public trust so that these guys who have now made a ton of money in other fields will become the new versions of what traditionally have been the best hope for newspapers which have been families like the Grams or the Soulsburgers keeping these things cuz i just think it's vibrant like at one point in new orleans um and in and the times Picayune just was bought out by another paper there and it's folded. But the Times Picayune, when it shifted to three days a week, this is, you know, there's a city that has so much stuff to cover on every level. That is something to me that is, that worries me when looking out. And it's why things like ProPublica, which, you know, are generously funded to do investigative journalism, I think are give me hope that yeah. there'll be similar models like that.
0: Have you seen Vice the movie? Yes, I yeah. did. So, forgive me because I don't remember, but there's that scene where Roger Ailes is trying to get trying to get a bill signed so that the uh, news organizations no longer have to c- cover subjects
1: you know, Oh yeah, in no. a balanced way. In a balanced way. That's right.
0: Right. So, I can't remember the name of that bill. But I was unaware of that bill. And to the extent that that is true, you know, I think we point to, you know, we point to cable television, we point to news outlets, whether it's CNN or Fox, what have you, as being core to the, the, the core driver of this uh, sort of balkanization and, and, and uh, uh, siloing. But that bill, you know, was obviously incredibly toxic.
1: Yeah. I mean, what's interesting in terms of so much of the history is that when – I guess in the forties and fifties when broadcast television started kind of emerging, you know, and because it was the airwaves, the airwaves were seen as this public resource. Yes. And that basically that the exchange for which that, that these networks made for getting to air stuff on a station was to kind of like do certain things in the public interest and, and having certain programming and all the rest. And also like to have balance on uncertain, uncertain issues. I think that within some ways the advent of cable, that kind of fe- fell away. You know, and, and look, it's, I also think that, you know, what the whole, there is also a tendency within a lot of the media now to the false equivocation. that, that, oh, if we had somebody giving this perspective, we have to have somebody giving this perspective. Well, that makes sense on an issue where there is really valid views on both sides. But when you have like, let's say 99 scientists saying something, is it then really a balance to have the one scientist who's saying the opposite chiming in? I don't think so. And I think it's that thing of like, we need to show all sides and I'm like, no, actually, when something when – a certain point we have to say, the evidence is all in and we can now safely say that, the, the, that climate change is man-made and man can do something about it and we're choosing not to. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It is amazing. Our species is incredibly – one of our superpowers is uh, denial.
1: <laughs> well, that's you right. Know?
0: And um, it's fascinating how we – uh, stick our head in the sands on a lot of these issues. Do you think
1: that's because, I mean, obviously there's real interest in terms of perpetuating a status quo. Do you think it's also just because inertia is sometimes the easiest thing to give into in, in the sense that to steer the shift, the ship in a different direction. I mean, when I look at movements for social change in this country, and there certainly have been, I mean, you know, like things like the labor movement, the civil rights movement, uh, the women's movement, you know, it required, these were not issues where the government was necessarily leading the way. These were issues where pressure had to be put on for, to realize that there was public support for change and for people to see that this was the right thing to do. And yes, then peop, then things like, you know, like the Warren court did the right thing with Brown v. Board of Education. And and Lyndon Johnson did the right thing with the Civil Rights Act. And then, you know, sometimes those those governmental measures met with resistance. But I think, I do think that, that when I look at the tradition of social justice in this country, people need to have their feet to, put, put, to the, put to the fire.
0: Yeah. And, you know, but it's interesting because it feels like when it comes to climate change, there is such a level of coordination that needs to happen between the the powers that be, right. That's unprecedented. You know, I mean, you know, so many of the social justice issues that we're talking about could be impacted locally. Yeah. Right. Um, and hopefully they would scale and and become more national or international or global, but you know, climate change, you know, America could do everything in its power, And it might still not be enough. 100%. China could do everything in its power and it may still not be enough.
1: You're you're exactly right. Where it's an issue that needs to be approached on a global level because of the ticking clock, because of what needs to be done. And yet, I think it's something where all of the individual players who are part of those decisions on the global level need to have their feet put to the fire, need to be pushed by, need to be, you know, it's something that is hopeful for me when I see this crop of democratic candidates for president is that they are talking much more about global warming than four years ago, than eight years ago. And part of that is unfortunately because we've had much more reason to be talking about global warming because of events in the news. And we saw that in the fires here this last year. Just
0: the last few days in the Midwest. I mean, Kansas got nailed with tornadoes. I mean, they've had more tornadoes in the last three or four days. It's been unprecedented. And, you know, it's just fascinating to me how so many of these states are also the states that deny climate change. That's right. You know, or accept this, you know.
1: That it is the voting against. Their own best interest situation again, which which is you know.
0: Well, but I also would argue that I think a lot of these states tend to believe in a monotheistic uh, uh, God that somehow in control and is going to somehow make everything okay, or that this is all part of some uh, supreme plan, plan. that uh, you know they you know that it's all going to be okay you know because it's part of this larger plan you know um, I don't know just a the theory. But Michael Oates Palmer, man, like you, this has we've, been, yeah. we've, we, we've gone deep. We, dude. We, we've covered
1: a lot are of Are we terrain. still talking about art? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. We are weird. We're talking about, I mean, I mean, don't you feel that like, it goes back to the, to that idea of letting it all in. That to be engaged in art and not be curious, engaged, connected to what's going on in the world Forget about just being an interesting person or a good human being from sheerly pragmatic standpoint as a creator. Wouldn't you want to be informed and in taking in as much as possible to be able to use as grist for the canvas, the word processor, whatever yes. tools you're using?
0: And by the way, you know, I have to say, and I'm proud to say this, that, you know, the majority of the artists I know are well-informed and yeah. are intelligent and are and are activated and are motivated and, and are fighters.
1: And that to me is the thing that's actually in some ways most ex- I think at times of real political strife, anxiety challenges, so much great creative work comes out of those things in part because you know, you need to sometimes scream at the way things are and 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 sing about how things should be,
0: yeah, it is interesting. I was talking to somebody the other day about this political there was a there was an art exhibition that happened downtown a couple of years ago. It was all about you know social justice and making change, and of course, you know this was a, a reaction to the election of Donald Trump, and there was so much. Passion, energy, money put into the show I went went on for many days. there were panels and speakers, and you know there's a whole educational component you know on top of the art exhibition, and so I go and I'm checking it all out and then uh i I you know get towards the end, and I ask you know one of the the producers i said so where where can I register to vote and the look on that person's face. <laughs> we where, where literally he just felt like
1: oops <laughs> <laughs> missed opportunity i knew we forgot something yeah big missed opportunity <laughs> no but i do think it's 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 that i mean to me the weekend of trump's inauguration yeah. the fact that women's march that happened yeah. that weekend right. was very was really important and in its own way was was reminds me of the role of art in the sense that you felt then something larger outside yourself that, that those of us who really, you know, were upset about Trump being elected. And I certainly was among them. You felt daunted. You felt discouraged. You felt, is this the country I thought of? Like, and then when you saw not just in LA or New York or actually I was actually in new Orleans that weekend with my father and we were actually walking and my dad for various uh, health things can't go marching, but we stood there while the new Orleans version of the March came to and because it's the new Orleans version, they had like a brass band, and all the rest of it. And we watched it. And my father who was on Nixon's enemies list, for being an anti-war activist. He was the head of a thing called the National Student Association. What a good list to be on. Yes, a lot of pride. And he had been student body president at Berkeley in the late 60s. But my father's watching this. My father's a very soft-spoken, kind of quiet guy. Much more than he was I think in the late 60s when he was on the ramparts. But he turns to me and he just goes, wow. He's like, this is the first time I've seen anything that felt like the 60s. And to me that, that weekend, like watching that March, you felt like, okay, yes, there's discouraging things and daunting things, but we have numbers too, that to have the feeling of community and to see. We artists, won the popular vote. 100%. I mean, we can me also a, look. You know, we won the popular vote and the James Comey letter and Russian interference and all of these other things 100%. See,
0: this is what frustrates me and I I, we, 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 yeah, I feel another hour of conversation coming on. we we'll, will we'll, we'll come, come on to
1: your political podcast <laughs> Yeah, we'll later come, you'll on.
0: come back. And will you come back? I of hope course. you come back. This has Always. been so fun. I no, no, love it. Um, but this is the thing. Like, you know, and I'm, you know, uh, my, my gal lost. I was as pissed as anybody. But when I look at how things have gone in my lifetime, I'm 40 nine now and it feels like republicans do a great job of playing the long game man i mean it feels like while well, we're focused on issues they're focused on institutions yeah. they know issues the don't matter if they have the supreme court if they have the congress if they have that we've got to learn how to fight better we've got to be become more clever they are clever as hell
1: yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, that's true. They also have some funding that can kind of help from some of the interests that, that, sure. that, 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 are supporting. But, but yeah, it's, um there is a part of me like, look, I feel like in terms of the environment and in terms of Supreme court, those are two things and not Supreme court, but just ju- the judicial arm in general. Yeah. State
0: houses too, for the, that matter.
1: The, those are all issues. But those are all things that we will be suffering for that you can't just you can't just turn these things back. These will be things will be suffering the consequences of Donald Trump's election for the next 30 years in the case of global warming, maybe for all of eternity. But I think that like most other issues that there are most of the issues that can be turned back and you do have hope and you do have these things. And when I see the people who are running for president now among the Democrats, but people like who are experienced and people who are less so it's exciting for me to yeah. see these. And, and what gives me hope in terms of the Donald Trump of it all, yes, do I think it's hard that the economy is quote unquote doing well, except it's still not doing well for the people who gave Trump yeah. the presidency in the industrial Midwest. Those people who felt like we haven't had the economic recovery that people in New York have had, that people in Wisconsin or, or, or Michigan or Pennsylvania. So, but I think that are there people who didn't vote for Donald Trump the last time? We're going to say, you know what? I really didn't like him the last time, but, but he's, he's, kind of, he's kind of grown Got on my me. Vote this time. He's grown on me. I'm supporting him. I don't think so. And that's why, in some way, I think they're going to have to rely on this despicable stuff of suppressing the vote, of yeah. purging people from voting, of doing things that are anti democracy. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that is one of the greatest things about our country chipping away at that. And to me, that's the ultimate kind of cynicism. And that, and that, and pushing against that is, is I think the best thing that creative types can do whether, yeah. whether they be artists or craftsmen well and
0: i feel like and this gets back to you know the writing of it i mean my god can we please come up with some some more human-centered narratives can we please come up with some new words and get rid of the same old parlance tired uh, paradigms and get humanistic and get human-centric in the design of our narratives
1: it can. and but what i would also say is that sometimes that means telling a story in a different way with a different tone. Like a film that I really liked a lot, and I liked it more than, than Vice, which, he also, which Adam McKay also directed, was The Big Short. Yeah. Because I thought that what Big Short did was great was that it was really funny. And I think that if you had told that story in a way that was just hand-wringing moralism, it would have felt like taking your medicine and you would have, you know, many viewers would have been just alienated or saying, screw this liberal, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And instead, it was actually a really funny movie talking about some things that would have been felt very opaque in, in, in terms of the mortgage crisis and all the rest of it. And so, it made it a way to better deliver that message. Mm-hmm. And I think not being afraid about using like, you know, using genre. I mean, I think get out. Is an example. There's something that it's almost the Trojan horse idea right. that you have the horror movie, but then it's also playing with satire and playing with real themes about where we are in race and pressures to pass and all all of all of these things. I voted for Obama both times. Yes, no, me me, me too. I voted for him in the primaries, but but you but you know what I mean. It's yeah. it's it, I think it's it's finding new ways to to tell our stories. But I think you're right in terms of humanism of where it is, it's it's not humanism in that saccharine sense of, right. of just saying kumbaya, it's when you read a great novel or sometimes see a great movie and the art sometimes sometimes it can really give you new insight in terms of human condition or of what we're doing here or your relationships or your friendships or work or whatever else. And and that to me is that like, that is one of the things that makes me want to do what I do for a living is that hope that, okay, can I in mucking around with this, make, you know, find some sort of insight. And, and also on also that level, you know, there's a great old, old movie, um, great comedy from, uh, I think, the 40s. Preston Sturges' Sullivan's Travels. Mm-hmm. And it's about a filmmaking director, you know, who is unhappy in his life as Hollywood. And he's like, I'm going to write, you know, he wants to write, he's, he's just done all these funny comedies. And he wants to write a serious message picture. And he's going, and madcap hijinks ensue on his road trip. And he ends up in a, like, in mistaken identity in a prison somewhere in the south, and it's then movie night at the prison, and they play one of his comedies, and he looks around at all of these like so hapless convicts laughing at his movie, and he kind of gets it that this is this is something good to put out in the world too. That, that just as like we you, you described the joy that comes from dancing, the joy that comes from seeing a stupid comedy, like, that's legitimate. Like, I think it's more that when we get into things or get into, like, I find it harder to celebrate horror movies that are just about torture. Like, that kind of stuff feels to me. Like, I just, like what is this? Is this really good stuff to put out there in the water? But I think that like, yes, we can inform, we can we can talk about connection and we can also create things that sometimes entertainment can be a great end in and of itself. I just think we also know that there's some entertainments are more nourishing yes. than others and leave us with something more. And I think some of the works that i've been most excited about in movies and television the last 10 years have been things that managed to both entertain and go somewhere deeper in their character study well the other e word is empathy yeah it's huge
0: entertain and empathize right and i feel it feels like what we need more now than ever uh, and we need more of it than ever is empathy. And as soon you know, you cannot demonize, you cannot uh, criticize when, when you truly know someone or have had. You know, I mean, we're we're afraid of what we don't know, we don't understand. And you know, when you bring people together and you you create that connection, create that communication, you start to stir empathy. You have the opportunity to stir empathy, and um, and the, and that's I think you know the salve on our democracy that
1: that we need right now more than ever. And I don't know if you can have empathy if you also if people aren't also curious. Oh, yeah, fair point because I think you have to be curious about like empathy like to walk a mile in someone else's shoes, you have to be curious about them yeah. to to, yeah. to to do that and to be put in that position, you know, to put yourself in that position. And, you know, I don't know if well, look, if, if narcissism is a, is an epidemic now or not. Well,
0: it, it, it's interesting that you mentioned this because, of course, you know, I grew up 40 miles outside of Chicago. Yeah. Okay. And I know lots of people who still haven't been into Chicago, you know, like oh my, the big bad city. Why would I want to go to the big bad city? You know, that still exists to this day.
1: Do you think that's due to not being curious or do you think that is to fear? Well, isn't it flip side of the same coin? Yeah, it's I mean, you know,
0: and it's both. You know, fear,
1: fear of the unknown. I mean, I do think it's something where you know, and we keep seeing this again and again and again. Maybe just anecdotally, but but I mean, I think that when somebody knows somebody, when they have a human face to attach to a demographic, they're less likely to feel hatred for it. Yeah. Whether it's someone, someone who's gay, someone who's African American, someone who's wh- wh- whatever you want to, whatever you want to choose, it's Harder to harbor prejudice and uh, and hatred when there is somebody there that you know and like who has that human fa- human face, and that always gives me hope. As people get to know other people more, and just lines get broken, and as people have people in their own families who identify as 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 as, as whatever it's that that does give me hope. That's the old, I mean, that great, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I definitely, that is that is something that I I feel like was spoon-fed in early age. And thank God for that, that it's very much that belief that, you know, I do believe, I think there are bad people, but I believe that most people generally are good and want similar things. And it's just, but I do think Fear can be crippling and that there are those who exploit that fear for for their own purposes.
0: And the power of art, one of the powers of art is to help to uh, mitigate that fear, make that connection, help to stir empathy. And that's also the power of the written word and the power of writers, which is also why I disagree with what you said two and a half hours ago that you are not an artist. You are an artist, my friend. Uh, You wield the power of the pen to do great things with words that will help to create these connections and stir empathy, whether it's on television or movies or in books. Who knows? Who cares? You are an artist, my friend. I'm so glad that you came today. Michael Uh, Oates Palmer, MOP.
1: I loved this. uh, One of many wonderful conversations, just the only one that's been recorded, I hope. (laughs)
0: No, no. I've been recording all of our conversations all of these years, and now's a good time to tell you. M.O.P., Michael Oates Palmer, thank you, my friend, for coming. Will you come back? For sure. And we haven't scared you away?
1: No, always. I'll actually be sleeping here on the couch tonight. You are the
0: first one to agree to come back. This is fantastic. (laughs) The New Day milestone (laughs) and the Not Real Art podcast. Thanks for coming through, my friend. Glad to be here. Cheers. Be well. Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode and share it with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please be sure to press subscribe and follow us on IG at NotRealArtificial. We appreciate the support. Sourdough. Out.